0: All right, so now we're recording again. Can you just talk so I can make sure you're appearing on here? Welcome to Fault Tolerant, a podcast mostly about crypto from a developer <laughs> perspective. I didn't know you needed a name for it.
1: Yeah, we we figured that out yesterday. That's a, that's a good name. It's not bad. Yeah, took like three hours to come up with it. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fault Tolerant, a podcast about crypto from a developer's perspective. Today, I sat down with Eric Showers to talk about the Constantinople hard fork and Grin. If you enjoy this episode, please feel free to share it and leave us a review. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. So I'm sitting here with Eric Showers, and we're going to talk about Constantinople, which I'm sure most people listening have heard about. So just a little brief overview of the Ethereum roadmap and what the Constantinople upgrade was supposed to be. The roadmap's been broken up into a few of these, I guess, milestones. There's Olympic, there's Frontier, there's Homestead. The one we're currently on right now is Metropolis. And Metropolis was broken up into two separate phases. There's Byzantium and Constantinople. And Byzantium already happened and Constantinople was supposed to happen on I think January 17th and then after Constantinople there's Serenity which is the Ethereum 2.0 uh, phase where we get sharding and proof-of-stake and the EWASM EVM but today we're gonna to talk about the Constantinople debacle if you could call it that you can call it that yeah <laughs> The fork was planned for block 7,080,000, which would be January 17th. And it has been delayed due to a vulnerability that was discovered the day before the fork was supposed to happen. And Eric's gonna tell us a bit about what went on with the hard fork and why it was delayed. Do you want to talk about the EIPs first?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been paying attention to this hard fork for quite a while, so I feel like I have a lot to ramble about, mm-hmm. um, and I'll try to keep it a little bit concise. But uh, n- not only was I following it quite a bit ahead of time, um, I feel like I was also lucky to be paying attention to the right place at the right time and catch a lot of the um, a lot of the process of postponing the hard fork, which is not just not an easy uh, easy decision to make. Yeah, so uh, we'll start with just going through the EIPs. Uh, and these are just list, listings of um, proposals on how to improve Ethereum. That's what EIP stands for, Ethereum Improvement Proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're numbered, I believe, just by the order that they come up in, uh, on the GitHub repo. So Constantinople had five EIPs associated with it. Uh, and the first one was called EIP1234. Or sorry, they don't really have an ordering, but that's where we're going to start with. Yeah. So EIP one two three four was addressing a couple things. But first of all, um, an issuance reduction from three ether to two ether, mm-hmm. and that's the the issuance that goes to um, the miner of a block. Now I don't I don't know the uh, like the the full reasoning behind this because it it goes a little bit out of my area of expertise. But I believe. It comes from the fact that um ethereum like as a network has fairly high usage and there's a lot of fees that are generated from usage um just transaction fees in general and that that in a way goes to support the security of the network and as the network grows and usage increases issuance can be reduced Uh, a lot of people were calling this the the third inning which is a little bit of reference to bitcoin's happening where every four years or so they they cut the uh, the issuance in half.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so I think, I mean, I did read a little bit on the uh, potentially a, a motivation for reducing the block reward. So apparently Ethereum overpays for security. Like if you compare it to Bitcoin and you look at, so Bitcoin pays a certain amount to its miners and Bitcoin has a certain market cap, right? So the network has a certain value and the network is paying a certain amount to its miners. Now with Ethereum, it has of course a different market cap, but it's paying from what I read about two and a half times the security sort of cost to the miners based on that market cap. So like if you took what Bitcoin's paying and their market cap, and then you, you scale that down to Ethereum's market cap, uh, Ethereum is overpaying the miners, if that makes sense, by about two and a half times. Right, So. Right at least from that perspective if you assume that the the amount that bitcoin is paying its miners is adequate then you can say yes ethereum's overpaying. and uh, i saw that argument from some people as to uh justifying that that uh, issuance reduction um another thing including included in the eip
0: um is something called the difficulty bomb as well this Mm -hmm. was this is a I find it a little bit weird, but it's kind of a scheme involved with the eventual proof of, uh, proof of stake, uh, improvements where the idea is that, uh, without a hard fork, um, the, the protocol will drastically increase, um, uh, difficulties for solving bro- blocks after a certain point in time. And the reasoning behind this is to incentivize the hard forks to occur that like the community needs to come to consensus. About how we're going to get to Serenity, how we're going to improve the protocol to implement proof of stake. Yeah. Um, so that's why that's why the uh, the difficult difficulty bombs occur, um, and it's also why they're not placed like very far in the future. I mean, um, in this hard fork, it was only going to delay the difficulty bomb for another twelve months, which which I don't think anyone is proposing that proof of stake or Serenity will be ready in twelve months. Mm-hmm. Just that that's the amount of time we can buy ourselves
1: until the next hard fork fork will be necessary. Yeah, the, the difficulty bomb, also known as the Ice Age, it is kind of a weird thing. I was reading a bit about it last night and thinking about it. And I think the reason it was introduced was, like you say, to instead of adding in, like eventually I think the, obviously Ethereum needs to go to proof of stake. And the difficulty bomb I think was introduced to eventually sort of force the developers and the community to move to proof of stake. And rather than adding it in later and introducing this increasing difficulty, which would kind of push people onto the proof of stake chain, you, you add it in now, and then you just, you fork to delay it and keep delaying and delaying it. And then, right. It's just easier to, to have it in there already than to add it in later.
0: Yeah, like I think it's important to recognize that out of everything in this hard fork, the only thing that needs to happen is the difficulty bomb delay. In in like a short a short-term kind of uh vision, right? I mean, obviously a lot of these things are very important, but uh the difficulty bomb, if it's not delayed like within a month or two or yeah. 3 months, uh the network will be under significant like I forget the word, but yeah,
1: like pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you one more thing on the difficulty bomb because it's pretty interesting. If you look at uh, the Ethereum average block times uh, for like on uh, EtherScan, you can see in 2017, I think it's like October, there's this huge increase in the the block times, and that was the difficulty bomb, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see this big ramp up. It goes from like 15 seconds or so to almost 30. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it it drops down back to like 14 seconds or so, and that was I think that was the Byzantium hard fork which in which pushed that the ice age back. So the ice age was starting, mm-hmm. which is why the block time started getting longer and longer. And then they did the Byzantium fork, delayed the the ice age, and we went back to sort of normal.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And that that happened over a time span from, that's actually longer than I realized, but from, from about May 1st until, until October 1st, there is a doubling of block time. So it went from 15 seconds to 30 seconds and the network didn't, uh, I mean, obviously it wasn't an apocalypse, but I think, I think if we left it to go to 30 seconds today, it would be uh, much worse than back in uh, 2017.
1: Yeah. Because that literally is cutting the throughput in half. Yeah, like it's it's really making a difference to the network. It's slowing it down significantly, and it's uh, it's reducing the issuance. So when you have that difficulty bomb, you're let's say you double the block time. You're now having the issuance like half the ether is being printed per day as was before. Mm -hmm. Is that all for one, two, three, four? Yeah, Yeah,
0: let's move on to the next one. Okay, so the the next few. Uh, are pretty quick to describe they're (laughs) they're not nearly as obscure of course um so the next one that we have on the list is eip 145 uh and this was a uh this was a proposal to introduce new machine code into the ethereum virtual machine so the ethereum virtual machine is the uh it's like the the computer in a sense that oversees transactions um so anytime you send a transaction to a contract the contract will have bytecode that runs in it, this computer um, and has very specific rules. And just like the computer or the, the CPU in, in your own computer, it has a, a set of instructions that it can execute. For the most part, these are very like low-level instructions, just kind of add two numbers, you know, move, move this number to this memory storage, that kind of thing. Um, but some of the important instructions that are used in uh, in normal like machine languages uh, weren't weren't present in the Ethereum virtual machine. So they want to add in three new um, instructions that do uh, bit shifting.
1: Right. So this is very similar to it's basically the same idea as assembly, more or less, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah.
1: exactly that's a good yeah. description of it. Yeah. Um, there's kind of like some wacky introductions
0: that like you could do a hash and that's like a machine code. Right. And which obviously is, that's not, not like the a, same as assembly, but yeah, it's
1: not like a primitive assembly yeah, operation to yeah. do a hash or something. Yeah.
0: So it, like in summary, this is just some really low level instructions that allow for better optimization because mm-hmm. um, all of this was possible before you just had to do it by like combining uh, machine codes that weren't really meant to do it. Yeah. And to give like a final visualization on that, bit shifting is literally like, like if I have zero zero one, um, and I want to bit shift it to the left, it becomes zero zero one zero. Sorry, I, I missed a zero there, but wouldn't it be you, zero
1: one zero? Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're it, just you're just shifting shifting bits. Yes. Yeah. So after that, we have EIP one zero five two, and this one I think is kind of cool. Uh, it's introducing a a machine code that uh, will have optimizations when one contract is inspecting the code of another contract so uh, previously contracts were only able to request the entire contract code of another contract so if they wanted to verify that a contract had a certain a certain implementation as a whole uh, they had to request the entire code which could be quite a lot of data mm-hmm. and then inspect it. Uh, and that would cost quite a bit of gas. And it was uh, it was inefficient for the virtual machine. So there's a new thing, a new code coming in called um, external code hash compared yeah. to the previous one, which was just external code copy. And uh, rather than returning the entire code of the contract, it just returns a hash, 160 bit, or sorry, 256 bit hash of the code. So it doesn't allow the caller to, um, to inspect the code in any way because you're just getting hash. and You're not able to look at spe- specific semantics of any of the bytecode. Mm. But if you already know what the code should be and you're calling a contract to see if it matches yeah. the exact implementation, uh, it's much more efficient. And that is something that it does occur quite often, especially I think in applications of, uh, of channels when you want to like if you're opening like a layer two channel, kind of like lightning and Bitcoin, uh, and you want to see if they have the exact Im- implementation of like that channel agreement, um, right. this will help
1: a lot.: Yeah, and you could check you could check whether uh, some contract code has changed or yeah, whether it matches what you expect it to really easily. The uh, next one is another another op code, eIP one zero one four. I read a little bit about this, but I didn't really understand what it was doing. Uh, do you have an idea of what this one is? Create two?
0: Yeah, this um, this one offers a lot of uh, optimizations for channels is how I understand it. So layer two kind mm-hmm. of scaling. Um, once again, similar to Lightning and Bitcoin. And the main thing is that uh, previously when you were going to deploy a contract, you'd use the create opcode. And this is sorry, I'll give some elaboration. This is when you're creating a contract from a contract. Uh, I think it's a little bit differently if you're creating a contract just by yourself. Um, Anyways, if you have a contract and from that contract you want to deploy another contract, use the create machine code. And to get the address of the contract you're deploying, it just takes your contract's address that you're deploying from, and the nonce which is the number of transactions for that address and then it hashes those two together now the problem with that is it's hard to anticipate um, the address of the contract you're deploying and as i understand it for a lot of these uh, layer 2 scaling applications it would be very helpful if they can anticipate that there will be a contract at some point in time add an address even if it doesn't exist yet right so this
1: opcode allows for that another interesting opcode yes but uh not the most interesting opcode no that would be the next one (laughs) (laughs) yeah the next one's the the big one (laughs) yeah yeah i have it highlighted in red (laughs) and funny enough i i didn't pay
0: much attention to this at all until the day before the fork when it became big news right yeah um it seemed like a pretty. inconsequential like upgrade compared Mm -hmm.
1: to the others the others seemed more important to me yeah maybe Mm -hmm. that's why i was overlooked maybe Maybe. yeah so yeah this is eip 1283 and this was a change to the s store opcode and uh this is where the the exploit was introduced
0: yeah so for a little bit of background the s store opcode is is one of those like a little bit more normal machine code operations. Uh, and it just has to do with, um, accessing or changing, uh, a storage value for a contract. So the idea was that, um, if you are changing the value at some location in a contract storage, and then in the exact same transaction, if you change that value again, the idea was that it should cost less gas to, to change it on any consecutive time, because, um, from anyone trying to catch up to the chain or anyone trying to measure like the change in state, it's a fairly like similar process in that sense like once right. once you've accessed one storage location and you've modified the like the value there yeah. it, it costs like you've already done the expensive process yeah.
1: so changing it again is costs very little
0: yeah in, in the sense of like what gas is trying to accomplish in the first place of mm-hmm. just measuring like how much it took to perform this transaction.
1: Mm-hmm. So this was making that operation cheaper, was it?
0: Yeah. It, uh, I mean, it's a great idea to, to reduce the gas cost of that. It, it would help out a lot of contract implementations. But let's get to the, uh, the juicy part. The, the problem with it, and I stress this is a problem that nobody voiced until the day before the hard fork was that... Um, A lot of contract implementations and and i face this a lot when i was working with solidity as well uh last year was that it's a fairly like well-known operation that people will say you can prevent a certain type of attack by just reducing the gas that's available in a transaction so this creates a problem because if suddenly certain operations are cheaper Limiting gas no longer limits operations right. as much as you initially thought. So that's, that's like a pretty, uh, pretty substantial shift in, in how the EVM operates. And I, I think it was very interesting that, uh, that so many people overlooked that. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I talked to you about this earlier in the week, but this vulnerability is something that even someone of my expertise... And I don't consider myself that experienced with contract code. Even someone like myself
1: probably should have noticed that. Yeah, which is kind of, I mean, it's kind of scary that we got that close. On the other hand, it's kind of, I don't know, reassuring that it got spotted before uh, the hard fork actually happened. So are there other attack vectors that rely on, you know, gas being having a certain costliness? in order for them not to be executed or is this kind of like a unique case
0: as far as i understand like reentrancy reentrancy as an attack vector kind of sums it up okay like that the whole idea of reentrancy is you come into a function like let's say i have a smart contract that uh people give me money uh like they give me ether and then I make a little note in my smart contract that says this address gave me this much ether so that later they can come back and they can ask to withdraw their ether. Mm-hmm. And the contract will check how much ether do they have and then send that much to them. So the idea of a reentrancy attack is that you could go to that withdraw function and uh, ask to withdraw your funds. And if it's written poorly, there'll be a line of code that says send them their funds and then after that, it'll say, reduce their funds to zero. But mm-hmm. if, if you're attacking, when they send the money back to you in Ethereum, uh, when a contract receives money, it's allowed to execute some of its own code. The reason for that is so that it can like choose how to accept the money. And like, mm-hmm. if it has to do any operations, it can. So in a region entrance into the attack, you would withdraw your funds. And when the funds get sent to your contract, You would then call to withdraw your funds again and since in the original contract you never got to the line of code that says reduce my funds to zero
1: you can just keep looping on this and keep drawing funds out and you never get to that line because you limit the gas or because it runs out of gas
0: well that was the idea was that uh, by limiting gas that like when you send the money Mm -hmm. back to the person withdrawing funds you would limit the gas, yes, so they couldn't do something complex, such as call the contract again.
1: Oh, I see. That was the idea. I yeah. see. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you you don't want the you don't want the calling you don't want the contract that's calling to be able to run a bunch of code in mid operation. Is that right?
0: Yeah, when it's receiving the funds, essentially. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that that's a basic example. Um the interesting part to me is that there's ways to mitigate like there's ways to prevent reentrancy attacks without using that gas stipulation and that that's kind of an ongoing debate as well about like like should we um should we promote that at all the idea that limiting gas will prevent reentrancy attack when when oftentimes there's ways to prevent against it, against it with more uh, reliable methods yeah
1: Limiting Using the gas limitation to prevent the attack seems, you know, on the surface seems kind of sketchy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that vulnerability was found the day before. Or it was published the day before. Okay, it was published the day before. So now where are we at? So the fork has been delayed, right? It obviously didn't happen on whatever that was, the 17th. So I do you know what's going to happen with the... The upgrade going forward.
0: I haven't looked at a
1: lot of the the
0: discussion around the hard fork, but I'm quite confident that that EIP, the last one we talked about, one two eight three, will not be included in this hard fork. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I read quite a bit of discussion um, the day of and the day after about uh, about like how it could be included moving forward, and it was it was quite clear to me that it's it's a very complex issue, and. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of interesting discussions that's opened up about this. I think it's, a great, it's been a great opportunity for the, um, the whole community and the ecosystem to mature. But yeah, the consensus is that this is not an easy problem to solve. <laughs> yeah. And the idea in general that, that contracts have been published with an understanding that they're secure on the EVM right now Means that it's a lot more complicated than we originally thought to modify how the EVM works because there's yeah. uh, there's just so many ways that that could change
1: um, contracts behavior. Right. Yeah, I think so. From what I read, Eric Connor, who runs ETH hub tweeted that uh, the fork would be pushed to February twenty seventh, block seven million two hundred eighty thousand, and that the offending eip would be removed Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah it's it's sad to
0: see that we won't be able to get that optimization but um i think there's still important stuff in the rest of the uh, hard fork and those eips were all independent from each other so removing this one shouldn't cause any problems in that sense yeah uh i mean mind you i hope that the test nets still go live with the new and improved Constantinople, so that we can make sure that everything's everything's okay in that sense. But right.
1: but otherwise, I'm fairly confident. Yeah, and I actually I don't think it was too catastrophic. Like, there's been a lot of discussion about this uh, delay and this this vulnerability, and I think some people are interpreting it like, oh my god, Ethereum almost broke. It was one day away from some like total catastrophe. Mm-hmm. But uh, I read this blog post by the I think the people who dis- who published first published this uh issue chain security is what they're called and they they couldn't find a single contract that would have been vulnerable Mm, i think that's i think that's been changed already okay they found one i i don't know
0: about them specifically but the chain security and trail of bits are the big names in that field and i know that i read i think just yesterday that uh they had confirmed um instances where uh that like the the proof of concept kind of a reentrancy did exist in on the main net chain okay yeah and i yeah i think it's important to recognize as well that um this is like in order to avoid another uh dow fork catastrophe like
1: (laughs) yeah that was a real
0: catastrophe yeah there can't be there can't be calculations made of like Of like well is this going to hurt anybody important right like i think that's kind of the point is that we can't calculate on like how much damage is too much damage
1: yeah well anyway crisis averted and uh hopefully there's no other exploits that are hiding in those other eips anything else you want to touch on with constantinople
0: yeah, I mean, um, I'm interested in sharing a little bit of my anecdotal experience. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Because <laughs> uh, Tuesday morning was a weird morning for me in that sense. I mean, I uh, I woke up that morning and a coworker had asked a question about the the hard fork coming up, and I knew the I knew the answer to it because I'd read a Twitter thread like just the other night on Monday night about it um, from the one of the main. Uh, developers involved with uh, scheduling the hard fork i don't know his last name but his first name's afri Mm, yeah anyways so i went to that twitter thread to uh to just get the url and send it to my coworker. and while i was there i glanced at his his main twitter feed i saw him say something weird about about a vulnerability Mm. uh and i looked at the uh the comments on that tweet of his and i found the uh the link to the all like the all core devs Gitter channel. So I went there and there was a crazy amount of discussion going on. So that, that had me glued to start with. Yeah. And from there I found that uh, chain security article. Right. And my, yeah, my eyes were like glued to the page at that point. Cause yeah. I mean, as I've said, the vulnerability was one of those things that once it's pointed out, it feels so obvious that, that I knew I had to pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. on the Gitter channel, it was, it, it was fascinating to follow. One of the things that i that i respected about it was that the uh the conversation stayed very focused and it was it was almost entirely focused on p- to postpone or not postpone from the start mm. which is good um because some people every once in a while you, you would see developers commenting about like oh can we remove this eip right now as if as if they're expecting to modify the hard fork the day before it's supposed to happen. Right. And that's like stuff like that is bad idea, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. how you lead to catastrophe from a small problem. Um, But yeah, somebody posted a uh, a Zoom chat and it was Mm -hmm. open. So that was a pretty exciting day for me because I got to uh, sit in a Zoom chat with all the core developers. Oh, right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and that was just like a fly on the wall moment for me. (laughs) Um, it took a while for a lot of people to get into it, but the uh, one of the main um, authors of the chain security article was in there and talking about their findings. Yeah, it was really interesting.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool how the whole process works right now. Like, you know, they're building this, undertaking this huge project. All these people working on Ethereum, and I think a lot of us think that Ethereum is going to be an extremely important system. for a whole bunch of different reasons and a whole bunch of different fields. So they're kind of building like this, you know, like they call it the world computer and the process of figuring out how to do that is sort of, it's just distributed all over the world. And it's kind of this free for all, like there's no, I mean, there's the Ethereum, there's some structure, but Mm -hmm. it's still, it's interesting to watch it happen and, and see how these things happen all in uh, real time. Yeah, it was really fascinating to watch an emergency
0: situation like that for mm-hmm. me because, um, yeah, like the, the core developers for Ethereum is a very asymmetric kind of organization. Um, I, don't, I don't have any understanding of how the Bitcoin core developers communicate and how they organize together, but I would expect that since there's a fairly small number of them that it's probably <laughs> fairly well organized. <laughs> right, yeah. But, uh, yeah, like on that Gitter channel, there's like 300 people because yeah cuz ethereum has like seven different uh clients right at this point um and each each client will have like 20 or 30 people that work on it so it's a it's a fairly large community of people that are all trying to organize together and i i don't understand how the relationships are between those developers and like like how um how well known certain people are or how how they know each other but i was i was surprised to see how well organized that emergency situation was
1: yeah yeah i mean for for a total like bottom up or more or less bottom up kind of free-for-all semi-chaotic process things seem to work pretty well
0: yeah yeah the the discussion was cool there was um there's people there saying uh chiming in every once while saying like oh i'm in contact with like me and my team are in contact with 70 percent of the hash power <laughs> that was oh, interesting that was kind of weird <laughs> that is kind of weird <laughs> but yeah. but that's what they needed right like yeah. they needed that kind of organization they needed people to be uh, reaching out and communicating because in a asymmetric organization like this um you can't just rely upon one person to call the shots like everybody mm-hmm. has to come to consensus and then do their part to spread the message right Um, Like, yeah, propagating those kind of decisions is harder, I think.
1: Yeah. All right. I wanted to talk a little bit about Grin. It's been, well, I mean, the the mainnet launched recently. So I've been hearing a lot about it. And I actually, I don't know too much about Grin, but I spent some time uh, last night and this morning going over it. And I just wanted to give like a high level sort of short version of what it is. So first of all, the name, a lot of the names or virtually all the names in Grin come from Harry Potter. So the name Grin is from Gringotts Wizarding Bank, apparently, and it's a shortening of that. So it's a privacy-focused, fungible, medium of exchange coin. And it implements the Mimblewimble protocol, which is another Harry Potter reference, apparently. Yeah, uh, do, you, do you
0: want me to help you with
1: that one? <laughs> sure. Um, Mimble Wimble is a reference to the
0: tongue-tying curse in Harry Potter, which uh, its incantation is Mimble Wimble. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Which is a, a reference to the, the secrecy of the coin.
1: Right. Yeah. Very clever. Tongue-tying. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess the, the protocol... So Grin is implementing a, this protocol, and the protocol is Mimble Wimble, and it was proposed uh, pseudonymously in uh, 2016 by someone using the name Tom Elvis Jedusor, which is apparently uh, like associated with Voldemort from Harry Potter as well. The, the pe- main people who are working on it are pseudonymous as well. And most of them have Harry Potter names. Uh, <laughs> enough about the Harry <laughs> Potter stuff. Anyway, the interesting thing about it is it's launching or it has launched with, there's no investors, there's no pre-mine, there's no ICO. And there's no founder's reward. It's launching similar to how Bitcoin launched, where the only way to get any coin is going to be to mine it and, or buy it off exchange. And there's no special entities that are getting like a extra cut or something. And yeah, like I mentioned, the mainnet launched recently. I think it was January 15th. It's just started trading. And after... I think it was right after the first block, it was trading at like 260 bucks per coin. And then after, 24 hours after that was down to about 750 and is now 20 or $30. Uh, none of that means too, too much. The supply right now is super low, so I don't think you can read too much into those prices. But that gives you an idea of where it's at right now. The other thing that was interesting was so Eric Meltzer, who runs the Proof of Work newsletter, which a lot of people will be familiar with, he wrote that they figured out something like a hundred million dollars has been invested by VCs in essentially in mining Grin. So there's a lot of interest from investors and the the crypto community in Grin. So I'll, I want to talk about a, a little bit about the just some of the points some of the technical points and a bit about the privacy of Grin. So it's a proof of work coin. It uses an algorithm called the Cuckoo Cycle, which is memory hard. Mm-hmm. The memory bandwidth is the issue that, or is the bottleneck for mining. So this should offer some ASIC resistance, although I don't think you ever get real, uh, like permanent ASIC resistance. The block times are 60 seconds and adjust every 23 blocks the issuance is interesting it's it's a linear issuance so uh each block issues 60 grin so essentially one grin per second and there is no cap so Mm -hmm. one grin per second forever which is interesting
0: yeah yeah, I I do find that interesting because that's mm-hmm. one of the parts of uh, the Bitcoin like protocol and the community in general that makes me feel a little bit weird is that they they take such a hard stance on issuance when that's issuance is like a problem that I feel like we don't really know the full answer yet until until this technology um, becomes more widely adopted.
1: Yeah, so the other thing about issuance too, I was going to talk about this in a in a bit, but issuance like the miners need to be paid. I've I've written about this as well. Like the the idea that your miners are being paid and if your miners have a certain budget that they can work within to, to do their mining, then you're going to have a certain level of security, right? Mm-hmm. So if your miners only have, if they're earning a million dollars a year, then they're unlikely to be spending more than that mining. So you're going to have like a million dollars per year worth of hash power. And therefore the cost to attack is going to be close to a million dollars a year. It's gonna that's gonna kinda of bound it somewhat. So if you have linear issuance, it it kind of worries me because at some point the like let's say the market cap of grin was constant, then if the if the market cap's constant and the supply is increasing, then the, the value per grin is going down, right? And if there's a constant number of grin being printed every unit of time, every whatever a year, then the budget being allocated to the miners is decreasing as well. Mm-hmm. So that kind of worries me a little, but I mean, Bitcoin's in a similar situation, except it's worse with Bitcoin because it actually goes to zero. Mm-hmm. But when you have a linear issuance like this, eventually your issuance as a percentage of supply becomes so close to the zero that it may as well be zero. Like mm-hmm. you if time goes for infinity, then the limit actually does go to zero, right? Yeah, pretty sure it does. Yeah, The, the <laughs> limit definitely goes to zero, yeah. So anyway, I don't know. The issuance thing kind of, I'm not so bullish on that aspect of it, but that's what it is. Yeah, so after 10 years with this linear issuance, the inflation rate will actually only be get lower than 10% after about 10 years. So that gives you kind of an idea of what the inflation rate will look like. Uh, starts off really high and then it gets low. The network's been live for just a couple of days, so there's about a quarter million grin floating around right now. And Wait, is that
0: true? It's only been live for a couple of days. Yeah, I
1: believe so. Really? January fifteenth, I think.
0: Oh, okay, that makes sense. I just. <laughs> I left a note on our little uh, cheat sheet for this podcast that uh-huh. said probably wrong when I read, <laughs> read 4,500 blocks because I, I did a quick calculation and I said 75 hours. And I was thinking, nah, the math doesn't add up, Jordan. But I guess, oh, okay. I guess it's just
1: because the network's so young. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was just a couple of days ago. There is a, there's a block explorer and you can, you can check some stuff out there. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a couple more points. There's no scripting language. There's no on-chain governance. The project is aiming to be like super lightweight, super, I, I guess, simple in some sense. Like the mm-hmm. blockchain is just trying to do private, fungible money, mm-hmm. nothing else. I do like that. Yeah, it mm-hmm. is interesting for sure. So the the way that, like I don't under- have a deep understanding of how the privacy works at all. But some interesting tidbits I picked up was there's no addresses. So if you look at the block explorer, you'll see, for a given block, you'll see a bunch of inputs and a bunch of outputs, and that's it. The inputs are just, like, 30 hex characters or something, Mm -hmm. and the outputs are just 30 hex characters. They're not associated with any address, and you can't even tell which inputs are, like, associated with which outputs. It all Mm -hmm. gets kind of mixed and obfuscated, so... Mm -hmm there's really nothing to see. There's there's no address. Like if you have a hundred grin, I can't find that out anywhere. There's no, there's no address for me to see your balance, which is good, which is very cool. Uh, so I think the way that the transactions actually work is the two wallets that are transacting, they communicate and exchange some information and do some magic cryptography stuff then they uh, they broadcast some kind of proof that the transaction happened as it should have but no one can see no one can see the the amounts that were transacted mm-hmm. and there's no address to see but you can verify that the person did not send more than they had and you can verify that the sender had access to the private key that was associated with some grin <laughs> so that all happened somehow yeah
0: yeah I don't uh it sounds pretty hand wavy <laughs> yeah. you said that it might I don't blame you for that um that's that's how I feel when I look into grin and I, I don't mean that as a criticism I mean that's my experience of anytime I learn new cryptography it's always pretty hand wavy at the start yeah. So, yeah
1: yeah I know it uses a elliptic curve cryptography which bitcoin does as well Mm -hmm. and i don't think it uses any well i think it combines some novel uh cryptographic methods together but it's not using like zk snarks or anything weird like that
0: oh i thought it was no i don't think so it's just a
1: it's elliptic curve and then some i assumed it was i mean yeah yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, i mentioned that the transactions everything can be verified but you can't see anything um the this is kind of cool the transactions do a, a random walk Before they're publicly announced, that's kind of neat. So, if I emit some transaction data, Mm -hmm. it will bounce around to a bunch of random nodes, and then at some point it'll be oh cool yeah some point it'll be announced.
0: Um, Bitcoin has that as well. It's called dandelion. Um, Pretty cool. Bitcoin has like the coolest implementation of it. I think it's it's the most advanced that I've seen out of any crypto. But um, yeah, pretty cool system where when you broadcast transaction, it like bounces around what's called the dandelion stem before it gets Mm -hmm. actually propagated in the network
1: right yeah cool yeah i mentioned the blocks a little bit there's there's nothing identifiable in the blocks like you can look at the block explorer it doesn't tell you anything Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, one of the another thing they talk about with grin is that it's it's uh should scale much better than bitcoin one of the ways they're accomplishing that i think really the only way is well they have the 60 second block time Mm -hmm. It's one thing but then they're they're compressing the transaction data quite a bit, mm-hmm. where with Bitcoin you have every uh, output to a transaction needs to be signed, and all of that data is stored forever. And to to arrive at the the current Bitcoin state, you need to replay all of that to build the state. Where with grin, the the intermediate transactions will be uh, eliminated. Mm-hmm. So if if between two blocks, A sends to B and B sends to C, then that intermediate transaction to B will be destroyed, mm-hmm. eliminated, and so the more transactions can be fit on a block, all else equal, should make for a small blockchain and faster syncing, which is good. Right. Yeah. When when I've had um, like when I've looked into Grin before.
0: Uh, there seem to be a lot of that skimming down the data and pruning data mm-hmm. which which i think is cool mm-hmm. um like that's that's one of the reasons why i like mimblewimble and why i like grin is because uh like they don't get caught in between use cases of blockchain like it's clear it's pretty clear when you look at mimblewimble clients that their goal is to go, like, as lightweight as possible and right. to just, like, cut everything out. Like, I mean, there's no scripting, right? Like, almost yeah. every other crypto has some sort of scripting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's another thing that I don't see that you have written here, and I don't know if it's entirely true, but my understanding as well was that grin, um, Grin basically has automatic mixing in. So, like, in Bitcoin you can go to a mixing service where you and like 10 other people send your Bitcoins to the service and then it mixes it all up and gives it back to you. You don't really know whose is whose. But my understanding is that Grin does this as part of the protocol, mm-hmm. which is one of the main reasons why um, the coins are so fungible. Yeah. Because you're like, you're forced to mix with everybody else in the
1: block. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's what, I think that's essentially what is happening. Like when you see the block and you see that there's just... Like a handful of inputs and a handful of outputs and there's mm-hmm. no there's no association drawn between them i think that's part of what it's doing is it's mixing all the transactions into like one big transaction right yeah so that's kind of the rundown i wanted to do of grin we'll definitely see how how it plays out there's a lot of excitement about it right now Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't
0: realize how young it, it, mm-hmm. it was because I've been hearing about it for quite a while. So mm-hmm. so that is pretty exciting. Like, um,
1: It'll be very interesting to see how the network matures over the next few months. Yeah, I'm also interested to see how the market reacts to it because there's a lot of excitement about it, mm-hmm. but the, the supply is just trickling out so slowly, right? There's all these people who want to speculate on it, but when the supply is so low, the price gets inflated, right? Mm-hmm. And then do you buy at that high price? You know, how do you, I guess mining is probably the best way to speculate on it. Yeah, we'll see how it plays out. Did you have anything else you wanted to to touch on?
0: No, I mean, I think we covered everything important from this week. It's been a big, big week for crypto.
1: Um. Okay, well, thank you for listening. Uh, we will have another episode in about two weeks. Uh, not sure the topic on that one yet, if anyone... Probably won't be nearly as interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we should maybe hope it won't be nearly as interesting. Yes, hopefully not. Uh we'll have something interesting though. Yeah. We have we just got a a CASA node, uh the a lightning node. So we're gonna get that set up and maybe we'll talk about that. If anyone has any suggestions or anything like that, you can email us at fault tolerant at membrane.net. That's m e m b r dot n.net and did you have a twitter or anything you wanted to plug eric no i'm pretty uh i'm pretty much of a recluse when it comes to social media but
0: um i would like All to right. plug our slack channel of course oh <laughs> for sure for sure
1: the vic blockchain
0: yeah vic blockchain um if you if you want to get into the slack channel of course you can send an email to fault tolerant at membrane.net mm-hmm. um that's where jordan and i talk a
1: lot and we there's a couple other community members that we that we have pretty good discussions with. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Especially if, if you're in Victoria, definitely join that. Uh, we talk about meetups and all kinds of stuff there. I'll plug my Twitter. It's uh, at Jordan MMCK. Uh, we also have a, an Instagram for uh, for Membran. It's, it's Membran Group. And I would like to plug our our sibling podcast. There's a new podcast that we're developing called off key and that's going to be hosted by linsa our coworker, and she's going to be talking to musicians and other people working in the music industry about the industry and how tech impacts their industry and we'll uh talk to you guys in the next episode